Okay, church, our teaching text this morning is John 5, um, verses 1 through 15, the healing at the pool. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Feels like the New York subway station. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. That day, which this took place, was on Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. I forgot what I'm supposed to say, but this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Brilliant. Nailed it. So true. I mean, you get up there, I'm just telling you, announcements, the teaching text, confession, it's, it's more challenging than it looks, folks. They make it, they make it look easy. So good to see all of you. Doing all right? Yeah, you are. We're clapping today, folks. Here we go. Love this. Uh, just feel free to clap throughout this entire excellent sermon. Oh, yes, thank you. So we have, uh, as you heard, Ash Wednesday's coming up on the 2nd of March. Um, actually, it's 7.30 in the morning, uh, but I, I, can, I really do encourage you, if you can make it to that, uh, that Ash Wednesday service at 7.30 a.m., uh, it is a beautiful moment in the church here every year as we enter the Lenten journey together and, uh, and sort of remember our mortality, and that might not sound like the most amazing way to spend the morning, but it, it truly, uh, it sort of sets your heart in, in, a, in a good place. People are shaking their heads. No one's coming. I'll be there. Um, <laughs> We have, two, we have two weeks left today and next week in our Epiphany series, uh, The Light Has Dawned, and, and we're trying to ask this question that's an epiphany question, and, and part of the reason we go through the story of Jesus as a church, uh, along with you know, being unified with the church across the world and across the ages, is that we come to certain questions around the person of Jesus every year, and his, his coming, his birth in, in Advent, and, and, and what it means for him to show up at Christmas, and how to live in light of that in Epiphany, and, and his, his journey in humanity, and temptation through Lent, and on the way to the cross. And one of the Epiphany questions is, how do we live if this Jesus has come in the way the Gospels portray. If this Jesus is who he says he is, what does that change about your ordinary Wednesday? Even more, more personally, an epiphany question that sort of gets at our heart, what would it be like to live 
with this Jesus, because the New Testament seems to indicate even though uh, the physical person that, that we're reading about isn't standing here with us in the flesh, that we can still live with this Jesus somehow, and that we can actually be like this Jesus somehow, and that in being like this Jesus somehow, we don't lose the unique parts of who God has made us to be, which is a beautiful, powerful, poetic vision of, of life. It's, it's part of this relational world that God keeps insisting on in the scripture, that God somehow is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, relationship in the Godhead, and, and the world follows that pattern. It is a relational world. Our deepest needs and longings uh, you know, connect at the level of relationship. So today, uh, we, we have this miracle where uh, Jesus does this type of thing. It seems like a lot in the Gospels, but Jesus heals this man, and then things get weird. Um, there, there are a couple like, wait, what uh, moments in this story? I don't know if you caught all of them, and I, I want to look at those wait, what moments uh, in this story and look at how things get a, l- a little bit weird, but uh, super quick before we do that, I want to just remind you of what has happened in John's account of the Gospel of Jesus up to this point. So Previously, on John's Gospel, I was thinking about doing that all all yesterday, and I think it went pretty well. What do you guys think? Yeah, oh my gosh, thank you, thank you, stop, stop, okay. So John's Gospel starts with this, there's nothing really like it in the the New Testament, but this astonishing preamble as he opens. The other synoptic Gospels begin with the accounts of Jesus' birth or or right into his ministry, but uh, John's Gospel begins with this astonishing, poetic, beautiful preamble. In the beginning was the Word. And if you sort of dive into the layers of this, it's astonishing. He's pulling together some of the best of Greek philosophy, some of the, the, the deepest convictions of the Jewish people around what Torah was, and he's saying that in all, In Jesus, all of these threads are coming together. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The next sort of scene that we have in John's Gospel is this announcement from this prophetic character, John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, who says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So pulling together these philosophical and religious threads into this one person who's somehow present at creation and yet revealing something about who God is to us and also doing something about atonement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the next thing we see Jesus doing is he calls some disciples. We don't get all of the accounts in John. John's gospel, but Philip, uh, Peter, Nathaniel get called. The next thing, and we had this in our Epiphany series, is he goes to a wedding. Jesus and his buddies get invited to a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus turns the water into wine. Ranks really high on some of people's favorite Jesus miracle, turning water into tons and tons of wine at this party. So um, he takes we talked about how he takes this dirty sort of like sink water, purification water, and turns it into this most astonishing vintage wine that, that, that sort of shocks the hosts of the party. Um, so he saves the family from humiliation. <clears throat> he introduces that there's a new way people will be made clean, and he, it's sort of a miracle of abundance, like what they need is this much, and he does so far beyond that. 
The next sort of scene we have is Jesus has this nighttime conversation with a religious leader, a man in power named Nicodemus. And Jackie unpacked this for us that he, he tells Jesus there's a new way to be born. In order to see the kingdom of God, you have to have a new spiritual life initiated in your regular ordinary life. You have to be born of water and born of the spirit. Again, then at the end of that chapter, the prophet uh, John the Baptist sort of makes another affirmation of Jesus. And then we have the Samaritan woman at the well, which we talked about last week. This, um, Jesus sort of changes his course in order to interact with this woman. She's changed spiritually and emotionally. She becomes a storyteller about Jesus. Then there's a little miracle that takes place in Galilee where Jesus heals uh, an official son who's close to death. It's a long-distance miracle. The guy comes up to Jesus and is like, look, my son's about to die. And Jesus is like, man, you guys all need signs and miracles, which seems like a little harsh thing to say when your son's sick, but Jesus is like, he's going to be fine. The official goes away and the guy's son is healed. You guys tracking with John's gospel? But now Jesus comes to Jerusalem and we have another um, story of healing, one of many in the ministry of Jesus. If, if there's one sort of thing for our hearts to note as we get into the story is that Jesus has a ministry of healing. I don't know what you came in here today. I feel like that's such a preacher thing to say. Like, of course, I don't know what you came in here with today. But I just want you to know right off the top, here at the beginning, that the Jesus we're singing to, the Jesus we're confessing to, the Jesus uh, we're, we're, we're you know, putting into our bodies, broken body and shed blood in, in communion, this Jesus has a ministry of healing. So if you came here today with something that needs healing... <laughs> This Jesus is able to minister that, that healing to you. And I don't know where on the spectrum of belief in that you are, but I just want to say, what if we suspended our unbelief for a moment and considered that Jesus has a ministry of healing? One of the things Christ has come to do, one of the primary things he's come to do is to, uh, to say the kingdom of God is coming. In Mark's gospel, that's how Jesus begins. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Reorient your entire life around the coming of this kingdom. So he's announcing this kingdom of God. He's describing uh, what the kingdom is in his teaching, in his parables. But he's also demonstrating the kingdom of God. That's what the healing miracles of Jesus are. He's not just talking about something that's a tremendous theory or wonderful ideal. He's saying, saying, listen, the kingdom of God, when it breaks in, people get well, people get fed, people get forgiven. So Jesus is announcing, demonstrating, and inviting people into the kingdom of God, and the healing miracles are a part of that. But the details in this one make us turn, make me, I'll say, I don't know what they do for you, but they make me turn my head a little bit, like, what is happening here? A few years back, I haven't talked about this very much because it's a touch embarrassing, and I want you to promise if I tell you about it, you won't go look for it online. Can we make a deal about that? No, no one's agreeing to that. Okay, fine, whatever. You know I have to tell the story now because I set it up. But um, a few years back, I had the chance to be on a TV game show, um, The $100,000 Pyramid. And uh, as far as I know, I'm the second person in the Trinity Grace Church history to be on this show. A longtime member who was in my life group for like seven years, Lee Montanay, was on the show in the 70s when it was the $10,000 pyramid with, with Dick Clark. But I was on with Michael Strahan, the $100,000 pyramid, and Lee won. Lee won the $10,000 pyramid. I did not win. I did not win the $100,000. My performance wasn't horrible, Okay. I've gone back and evaluated it. Um, 
But I did, have, I did have a lot of room for improvement. And so the celebrities who I had with me was Retta from Parks and Rec. You guys know Retta? I didn't know her before. I, didn't, I wasn't a Parks and Rec fan, but we met there. And Dr. Oz. Yes, so my performance being what it was is mostly my fault. I take the, the 90% of the blame, but 10% does go to Dr. Oz. Because I gave this man some clues, and being a doctor, in my opinion, he should have gotten them a, a little bit better. So I didn't make it to the big money pyramid at the end. But one sort of ray of light in the experience was I did win a seven-night Caribbean vacation to this all-expenses-paid exclusive resort, and they pan to all the beautiful pictures. And so the moment happens where you have to get a certain number of answers in a very short amount of time, and I get it. And me and Dr. Oz just jump up, and we're like, wet, you know, spirit fingers and running around and celebrating and like, like hugging one another. Like, <laughs> he's not coming on the vacation with me. But <laughs> it was a fun moment celebrating with Dr. Oz. And then, yeah, it was. And then immediately I come off, and they've got these people, and they've got these forms laid out for me to sign. And, like, the enthusiasm of seeing this seven-night vacation in the Caribbean. And now I've got to sign these documents. And, like, you can see right here the value of the trip. We valued at $20,000, which means you're going to be taxed for, this is a taxable event, and so you're going to be taxed $6,000 for this trip. This is a very expensive free trip. And, uh, and you don't, you have until you leave the stage to decide, will you sign the paper, will you accept the trip? I'm just like, and honestly, it was a little bit of a deflating moment. Here I was partying with, you know, this pre preeminent celebrity psychologist, Dr. Oz, and now I'm off stage and I'm realizing I might not be going to the Caribbean because I can't afford $6,000 of taxes. And I was thinking, I'm not going to be able to get a babysitter that long, so we're going to roll into this exclusive resort with our four children and everyone's freaking nightmare at the pool bar looking over and seeing us come in. But my beautiful moment, which should have been just pure celebration, was seriously deflated because it was all these extenuating circumstances that made me actually not be able to access the goodness of the thing that was promised. And when I read this story, you're like, what a terrible setup, but whatever. When I read this story, I kind of want to scream at it. I kind of want to, I kind of feel that same feeling like, did you see there was a man who was disabled, unable to walk for 38 years, and he was healed, and he got up and carried his mat? He didn't just feel better, he walked, and then people were like, it was the wrong day. It's a $6,000 taxable event if you don't know. What? Can you imagine being this man? You get healed, but it's the wrong day for carrying mats. You get healed, but now people are after you. You're in trouble. You get healed, but you don't even know who the guy is. They come and ask him. He's like, I don't know. He slipped away. You get, you get healed, but then later you also get confronted by your healer. You get healed, but then you sort of turn your healer in. <laughs> He throws Jesus under the bus by the end. He, he, he says like, hey, you're looking for this guy? Here he is. What happens? At the heart of this story is a miracle. But it gets obscured. It gets real life scratched all over it. There's a controversy. It's a controversial miracle. And I was thinking about that. And, and maybe there only are controversial miracles.
Because, right, if, it, if you didn't see it with your own eyes, there's always that space for doubt. Or if it didn't happen to you, there'll always be some other option of how to explain it. And here's the wild thing. Sometimes when it did happen to you, you find another way to explain it later in life at another season, a few layers removed from the actual experience. And so maybe there only are controversial miracles. We don't really do consensus and agreement, um, you know, as, as people. And then there's some beauty in that. We need, uh, we need checks and balances. We need to play off one another. It wouldn't be good for everyone to be the same. But it seems at times, I mean, it's like almost like a cliche now to say how divided we are as a society. And you can think about back in your experience over the last couple of years, and it does seem like, and it's an easy target, but it seems like social media on some level has amplified our differences. Like I, I will go online, you, you probably had an experience like this. Someone that I respect and follow, and I've read, I've read their work, and I know sort of the body of, of, of you know, where they're coming from, and I see them make what I think is a pretty innocuous, very positive insight online and then I read the comment section which feels like there should be a warning with all of them all the comment sections on the internet should have, have warning, warning signals like the comments will just literally drive off the cliff like take the idea and worst possible you know uncharitable interpretation of it there's so much sarcasm so much cynicism so much vitriol so much critique and on one level, it's completely understandable. Our world, in so many ways, is in need of repair. Things are, are broken and wrong, and we need to talk about what it would look like to understand those wrongs, and then what it would look like to move towards healing, to move towards repair. But sometimes as you get near the conversation, it can feel like, is that what we're really doing? What happens if we lose our capacity for joy? What happens to us if we lose our capacity for wonder or for simple gratitude? Like it's, it's, a, it's a joke, but sometimes you'll get to spirit like, like somebody will be like, hey, mom, happy birthday. And then under in the same comment section will be like, what about everyone whose birthday it isn't today? Some people aren't having birthdays this month. And here you are, it's like, well, hang, hang on. I feel like I've touched something here. What kind of world do we make if we're making that world by angry critique only? What, and it's kind of a question that this, this story raises. The, the way it plays out here is what if you spend your Sabbath flying around making sure everyone's keeping their Sabbath? Have you entered the rest of God? So, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. I, I want to enter this story with our imagination together. That's something that these epiphany stories are inviting us to do. Let's go into the story with our imagination, uh, but with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, come Holy Spirit, help your church to hear your word today. And I think I, I want to look at this story in three quick sections. The, the, the man himself, the su subject of the miracle, what happens in the miracle, and then the controversy that follows. So you can sort of see where we are as we go along. But let's pay attention to how we find this man on this particular day. And the particularities are important when we enter a story with our imagination. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called uh, uh, Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. 
Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who, uh, who was there and had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So maybe you have to close your eyes, but whatever way, let's just picture this for just a moment. There's a large crowd of people, disabled, lame, blind, paralyzed, waiting for healing. And we don't know everything about, you know, why they're there or how they got there. Actually, verse 4, if you notice in the NIV, is not, not there. Because there's a, a, a section of explanation about why these people are at the pool that's not included in some of the original manuscripts. And people think it was added as an editorial note to let people know why people were there. But there was a, um, a sort of a myth, a belief that an angel would come down and stir the waters of this pool. And the first person who got into the water after the angel stirred the water would be healed. So we don't know, maybe this water had some healing properties, maybe someone experienced something like this at some point, but an entire mythology had grown up around this pool and people were gathered there and apparently it wasn't working terribly well because this man was, was there for some long amount of times. Maybe he wasn't there the entire 38 years he had been sick, but for 38 years he had been in this condition and he wasn't getting well. I want you to think about that 38 years. Some of you, that's older than you. Some of you, would be, it would be your whole life. So many days of the same thing. Probably becomes impossible to expect really anything else. You just say, this is just how it's going to be. And you develop a culture around your disappointment. You develop a culture around your expectation not being fulfilled. And so you make a life in this space. I, I think a, a telling example is how he answers Jesus' question. Now, Jesus does this type of thing from time to time in his miracles. He'll say to the person, what do you want me to do? And to this, to this man, he says, he says, do you want to get well? Now, if I'm there as an invalid for 38 years, in my imagination, am I entering the story? I'm like, absolutely, right now, please, thank you very much. That's not what he says. He doesn't answer yes. He explains to Jesus why it hasn't happened yet. He sort of speaks out of what's been formed in him over these 38 years, a narrative of disappointment, a narrative of low expectations. Some of you come to church And you feel very, rightfully so, you come with low expectations. He explains to Jesus why he hasn't been made well yet. He explained that he's alone in the world, that he doesn't have anyone to help him get into the pool. He's not lying. He's just speaking out of the narrative that he's living in. And then he says, um, "While, while I'm trying to get down, someone else gets in ahead of me. So he has this sort of, Story, the story he knows is, is one of despair. So even though he wouldn't name it yet, with a possibility of healing standing right in front of him, the story he's most familiar with is one of despair. I want to say I, I can understand that. Like, I wish I, I couldn't. You know, I wish I was a little more resilient at times. But, like, two things can go wrong in my day, like, early on. And I get pretty mopey. And I'm walking around my house, and Allison's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, nothing's wrong. 
You know that experience where, where you start to enter this story of disappointment? 38 years. 38 years. I want to ask you do, you, do you know what it feels like to be discipled by disappointment in that way? There's a healing that we need that we haven't gotten. There are deep longings of our life that feel like they are, they are delayed, maybe delayed forever. Others have gotten in ahead of us. We feel left behind. We are one story of pain in 8.5 million stories of pain. How, how is our story of pain gonna draw the attention of the divine? One of the things I've learned about my own stories of despair that I can fall into is I didn't, I didn't equate them very often with laziness, but my attention has been drawn to that possibility in, in, the, in the last few days, uh, in this last stretch of my life, not just like the last 24-hour periods, but like that sometimes I allow myself to wallow in my own sort of discipled by disappointment story. And I keep telling my disappointed story to myself in new ways to keep myself in this place of low expectations. And sometimes, not always, right? Despair is honestly come by in a broken world. Some of us have dealt with astonishing amounts of pain and you have every right to be hurt by that and disappointed by that. But you have to ask yourself, what does it mean for me to decide I'm going to only live in that story going forward? 38 years and nothing is going to change. I'm at, the, the thing I'm most certain about is that nothing is going to change. Is that a good place to be? Sometimes that might be a lazy place to be. Because wallowing doesn't ask that much of you. I came across uh, some words from a hero of mine, Eugene Peterson, who passed, passed away at the beginning of the pandemic. And he says, it is, of course, far easier to languish in despair. We can live lazily and shiftlessly with an untarnished reputation for practicality, current with the way things appear. It is fashionable to espouse the latest cynicism. If we live in hope, we go against the stream. Church, that's our calling. That's part of our invitation to full life in Jesus is to go against the stream even when it is utterly practical and we can have a footnoted academic article for why despair is the most practical way to be in the world given everything that's going on politically and, and scientifically and environmentally and morally and whatever arena you want to look at. It's been this way for 38 years. You think you're going to change it? This is where we find this man, unable to walk, disabled, nurturing a whisper of a hope that faded a long time ago. So let's look at the miracle. And the obvious miracle, the healing is coming, but first I want you to see Jesus see this man. I want you to see Jesus notice this man. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, one who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked them, do you want to get well? So Jesus sees the man first. There's a great crowd of people, a bunch of them laying by this pool, hoping somehow to experience the mythology of the this, of this stirring waters and the healing. And, and days after day is going by and nothing's happening. And Jesus sees this man in the crowd. And then the word learned there, 
He learned that this man had been in this condition for a long time. It's a trans, the translation of the word seems to indicate that Jesus did some work, that he didn't just notice the man, that he began to ask some questions himself, and he found, he found out about this man's story. He, 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 he looked into this man's uh, situation. So there was a noticing first, and then there was an entering of this man's story. We live in an attention economy. <laughs> there are so many forces in our world vying for your attention. Your attention is a valuable commodity in our economic system. How many clicks? How many likes? How long will you see this ad? How likely are you after three trips to the same website to actually make a purchase, right? There, there's so much going on to study where your attention is directed in our world. So many forces. And, and also, then attach that. So, so many things are after your attention. And we live in a world and in a city of profound need. So when you cross the man who comes through your subway car asking for help, you know there's, a, there's someone in the next car and the next car. And when you get off between the train and your office, there's three other people. And so you might have brought a little cash in case someone asks you, but what about the next need? And you're not going to make a dent in it. We're going to make sandwiches in a couple of weeks. We're going to give all those sandwiches away and someone's still going to be hungry. So what we can do is sort of disciple our hearts with disappointment to say, I'm not going to be able to do anything about this. So I'm not going to do anything about this. So many forces vying for your precious attention, so much need in the world, so many of us settle for a life of distraction. We tell ourselves other stories or we bury our heads in the sands of our phones. Uh, the, the, need, the need is too great, the, the, the crowd is too large, I already have a lot to do and so I bury myself in, the, in my smartphone or my indulgences or my busyness or whatever and it's practical and no one can argue with me and we all do it. But Jesus notices and then he follows up. And in that paying attention of Messiah, healing breaks into the world. And I want to tell you, I'm going to give away the end of the sermon, but here's where we're headed. The ministry of Jesus is the ministry of this church. The ministry of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, is your ministry. You are invited into the ministry of noticing. You are invited into the ministry of following up of learning the name, of learning the story, of moving in, of saying, yeah, I can make 16 sandwiches and we're gonna need 6,000 sandwiches and it's not gonna be enough, but I'm gonna make these sandwiches because someone's gonna eat these and that matters. Jesus notices, he follows up. That's part of the miracle. <laughs> I wanna say this to you because you might feel like God doesn't see you at all today, but one of the ministries of Jesus is noticing you, noticing your heart rate right now, noticing the sort of mind palace of reasons why you can dismiss what I'm saying, <laughs> noticing all the things going on in your heart where the story of disappointment is still playing so profoundly. Jesus notices and follows up, do you want to get well? Then the miracle. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The word made flesh 
the Logos, the Torah made flesh, speaks a word of healing to this man so quietly, so personally, so out of the way, no fanfare, and what happens? The man is made well. Jesus speaks out of his authority, get well, pick up your mat, and the man does. It's not like the man's like, you know what, I do feel a little bit more hopeful. He picks up his mat and walks away. The ratification, the verification of the miracle is the man stands up after 38 years and walks away. It's not just saying, you know what, I'm going to think about that a little bit differently now. He's well. The authority of Jesus notices, follows up, and with authority speaks different reality. The kingdom of God in this man's body right now. And he gets well. So many of us don't want to pray for healing for someone because what if it doesn't happen? I don't know the exact stats. One day in heaven there will be a spreadsheet, I imagine, that has this laid out. I've shared my faith with a certain number of people in my life. I've prayed, laying my hands on them with others for healing for a certain number of people in my life. I don't know. I don't know the stats. Again, I don't have that heavenly spreadsheet. But, but what my guess is, way more people have not responded to me sharing my faith with them, giving the gospel. Way more people have not been changed by me sharing the gospel with them than have not been changed by me praying for healing. I've seen some people get well. And I'm not, not bragging about that at all. But I have actually seen some people get well when I pray for them. And yet still, when the time comes, if we pray later and, and you come up and I pray for you for healing, I want you to know the whole time I'm going to be panicking inside that nothing's going to happen. I'm going to be freaked out. I'm going to be like, what? I'm going to be wondering what you're thinking about my prayer. But all I'm going to do is say, I don't have magic words, Jesus. Please do what you do. Let your ministry of healing come, come in this person. And we never say, because people didn't respond, we should stop speaking the gospel. But what we say is, if people don't get healed, let's stop praying for healing. Because there's some charlatans out there on TV who are just doing it for money, and it can't be real. What? Jesus has a ministry of healing. Church, your ministry is the ministry of Jesus. We need to be praying for people to get well. Not because we got magic hands, because we have Jesus who makes people well. Let's begin to speak to our tremendously low expectations with the reality that God likes to give his kingdom along relational lines and may want to have you involved in his healing of someone else. Not because he couldn't do it on his own. He wants you to have the joy of sharing in it. It's very similar to why we do share, share the gospel. You think Jesus couldn't show up in a dream? You think he couldn't reveal himself in any way he wanted? A, a million sort of circumstantial details in that person's life and they read the Bible and come to faith. But he wants you to have a share in breaking the bread and giving the meal. Yeah, baby, let's go! Jesus has come to show us the kingdom of God, and here it is. The lame are made to walk, 
The sick are healed, the hungry are fed, those who are hounded by shame are forgiven and led to freedom, the exhausted find rest, the exile comes home, chaos becomes joy, the kingdom shows up, Jesus makes this man well. It's an exercise of authority. He simply speaks it. He doesn't beg. He just says, let this happen, let this be. Jesus' prayers for healing are so simple. Get up. Be healed. See. They're very short. His next interaction with the man is, uh, is interesting. After the, after the controversy, which we're going to hit in just a second. Later, Jesus finds the man at the temple and says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, this for me is honestly another wait what moment. Like, hey, hang on. Like, you, you want to ad- address this? Like, you just happened to bump back into him? Like, what? you didn't mention this in the beginning? What does Jesus know about this man? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you? That sounds a little threatening, Jesus. You need your PR team to swoop in and be like, well, what he meant was. (laughs) What, What I see, two things really powerfully. One, Jesus doesn't deal with this man's sin before he heals him. What? You don't gotta get yourself together before you can receive healing from Jesus. If we pray for you later for healing in your life in some way, you don't need to be like, well, you don't know about this addiction. You don't know about this pattern. You don't know about this lie. You don't know about this wound in my family. You don't know about this thing that I've done. You can leave all that behind and come to Jesus and get healing. And then maybe later he's gonna be like, hey, what about that thing? Because he does have authority to speak healing in your life, but he's calling you to life and life to the full. Leave behind this thing that's dragging your soul down, that's discipling you in disappointment, that's keeping you from abundance, that's keeping you from real life. He speaks to this man like someone who who knows what truly makes the soul alive, what truly makes the soul whole. He speaks like someone who knows what makes for joy. What leads to real rest? Like someone who is God in flesh. Logos, Torah. He's not just making this man well on the surface, but he is approaching in utter grace. This isn't behavior modification. This is let me lead you out of slavery and then let me teach you the way of freedom. Let me speak healing to you so you pick up your mat and walk and then we'll deal with this thing going on in your life that seems to plague you in your mind and heart. It's grace first and then transformation. You don't obey to be loved. You are loved and so you are free to obey. Gospel, gospel, gospel. So, as is normal in our world. Not everybody loves it. So let's look quick at the controversy. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. Come on. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath, a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into into the, this is another wait, what moment for me? Like, I would be like hanging onto this guy's tunic. Where are we going next? This is amazing. I'm better. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. 
So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. We don't even have time to go to all the layers of this. This controversy shows up with Jesus over and over again about Sabbath and what can be done and what can't be done on Sabbath. And for us in the West, in a Protestant church in particular, it's really easy to sometimes dismiss this as absurd legalism. Like these people don't get it at all and, and, and move on. But Jesus keeps having the conversation. He keeps going around and around with these Jewish authorities because Sabbath is tremendously important. <laughs> In the first chapter of Genesis, as the creation story is being told, and remember Moses writes Torah after Israel's been brought out of slavery in Egypt, and they've been making bricks in Egypt for 400 years, and one of the the keys, the very heart of Genesis 1 is Sabbath. That you are a people not defined by important, and Jesus is not dismissing it. When you see him do these good things on Sabbath, he's not saying, Sabbath is out, I've come to be, I've come to be the fulfillment. Now you work seven days a week. That's not what he's saying at all. Torah is God's word, and these people are trying to obey it, and Jesus has all day for that. But there was this ongoing argument in in the Jewish faith in the first century around how to keep Torah, and I'm I'm not going to get into all of it, but there were were two um, really prominent rabbis named Hillel and Shammai who had had risen up to prominence, and they were the two sort of main schools of thought around interpreting the laws of Torah and, and basically helping to distinguish what is the weightiest matter of the law. This is a really important question that Jesus gets asked. What's the most important commandment? You remember? And Jesus answers that commandment, and he doesn't make up an answer. He gives an answer of one of the two prominent rabbis. So one of them, Shammai, said the most important, one of these prominent rabbis was, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That was his second most important commandment. Hillel who, you know, like, it's not helpful to label it conservative and progressive, but when you sort of read their list, that sort of language comes up in our heads as modern people. But Hillel said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is what Jesus says when he was asked what the most important commandment is. So basically, everyone agrees on the first commandment. The second commandment is really important because that informs your lens for the rest of the commandments. What do you do in a situation where you have to break one of the commandments? Which one do you choose, right? And there's all kinds of examples. If your animal falls in the ditch, is it right to help them if you're going to have to exert energy on Sabbath? Which lens do you look through? And Hillel's lens was love. And Shammai's lens was obedience, That's the lens we're looking through. And both are tremendously important. And Jesus connects them. If you love me, keep my commands. Oh, what? Jackie talked about this. If you want, there's a a podcast she referenced. I'm going to reference as well, Bama podcast. They have a a deep dive on this if you're like, want to just go go all the way in. Um, But a rabbi's yoke was essentially their 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 teaching of what the weightiest matters of the law were, their teachings of what the greatest commandments were. And and Jesus continually says, the lens I'm, I'm looking at Torah through is a lens of love. So Jesus isn't upset that they wanna keep Sabbath. He seems to come back to the reality that in their reading of Torah, they're missing love. They're missing their neighbor. They're very concerned about their heart. This is one of the things that happens in fundamentalism is you become so concerned about your heart that you forget your neighbor. 
And Jesus is like, I got your heart. I want you to love your neighbor. The Jewish leader said to this man who has been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, actually, the law did not forbid him to carry his mat. Tradition forbid him to carry his mat. There's very few specific laws in Torah about what what you can't do on the Sabbath, and there's this broad category of work. And so a whole bunch of tradition had grown up around how to keep the the Sabbath. But the reality is, Jesus is saying, let's see this through He runs the command through a lens of love. Jesus keeps Torah. He is the fulfillment of it. He's not discarding Sabbath by any means. And we're finishing right now. He's saying the Sabbath is for love. (laughs) To love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To know that you're not defined by your productivity. That you can rest in your relationships. So what does all this mean for us? I want to try to pull it down into three simple statements. One, Jesus is our healing. No matter how long we've waited, Jesus has a ministry of healing, and quite often he passes that ministry of healing through the church. Jesus is our healing. Jesus is our rest. No matter how much the world needs healing, we're not going to be able to get around and change it all, but we can Share in the rest of our Lord. We can share in Sabbath. Because Jesus' ministry is our ministry. And that's where those things come together. How do you know which one to do when? How do you know when to go out and try to be about working to see healing take place in the world? And where, where, when are you supposed to just stop and rest? And the answer is in relationship. In the ministry of Jesus becoming our ministry. That's the way we're invited to show up in the world. So my question to you is, do you know that you are seen today? Do you know that Jesus notices you? Follows up on how you're doing? Do you know that Jesus knows the details of your story? Do you know that Jesus is a healer today? Do you know that Jesus is offering Sabbath rest today? Do you know that he has given his authority for you to speak his word today, to speak healing today, to pray for healing today? We are invited into that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's been said in a couple of different ways in this service so far, but I believe that you might want to lift some eyes today. For some of us who have just been looking down at our own disappointment, our own hurt, our own frustration, our own need for healing, you might want to lift our eyes, change our perspective, introduce the possibility that you can make us well and that you can give us your very ministry, Jesus. I pray you would do that in our midst today, God. I pray that anyone here who needs your healing, God, would not leave without seeking it, would not leave without asking. May it not be that we don't have because we don't ask. 
So lead us right now by your Holy Spirit. Show us, Jesus, that you are healer, that you are Sabbath giver, and that you have given us your ministry and and help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.